I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Spooky Pants, our special October edition of scary podcast episodes from the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. For the next month, we are keeping things in the spirit of the season with a festive lineup of guests to talk up the ghoulish and the ghastly. From the history of magic to anthropodermic bibliopathy, which I encourage you to Google. This week, we're revisiting our interview with Christopher Scaife, Raven Master of the Tower of London, home to the ghosts of two and a half executed queens and the rest of Henry VIII's blacklist. Not to mention half a dozen black ravens, without whom, as the legend goes, the tower will crumble and the kingdom will fall. Well, since there haven't been any dead bodies littering the tower green for centuries, someone's got to keep the ravens alive. And that person is the raven master, Christopher Scaife. He's a Yemen warder, a beef eater, like the djinn, and one of the custodians of the tower's rich history and traditions. He's written all about it in a new book aptly titled The Raven Master. Turns out there are a lot of secrets buried in the tower, and its legends might not be entirely true. Chris Scaife joins us, sadly sans raven, since they can't leave the tower, to talk about his life with the ravens. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Well, I mean, this sounds like the most unconventional, unpredictable job to be the raven master at the Tower of London. So I guess my first question is, how did you become the raven master? Did you choose the ravens or did the ravens choose you? Well, I joined the tower in uh, 2005 as a yeoman warder, uh, or more commonly known as a beef eater. And for about six months, uh, I was uh, doing that job. I still do that job now. And the uh, old raven master, a guy called Derek, he kind of come up to me one day and said, he says, boy, because he called everybody boy. He says, I think the ravens might like you. So I kind of automatically thought, why would the ravens like me? I mean, that's a bit strange. Anyway, he took me down the enclosure. He put me in an enclosure with two, what I thought were massive ravens. And uh, I just stood there, kind of a little bit petrified, really. And one of them started to walk towards me, cocked his head to one side. And instantaneously, I looked at the raven. The raven looked at me, and I kind of fell in love with them, realising that they were sussing me out. 
And then he said, he said, all right, get out. So I got out. He said, yeah, the Ravens like you. So I tell everybody that the Ravens picked me rather than the other way around. How did you train up to get involved with them and care for them on a day-to-day basis? I guess, how long was your apprenticeship? So uh, once the Raven uh, master at the time had taken me under his wing, excuse the pun, then he trained me basically how to look after them. So he trained me how to feed them and, and clean up the enclosure and their welfare and their safety and their happiness at the Tower of London. But it wasn't until really I took over as Raven master and, you know, a little while into that, then I started to observe them in, in greater depth, looking at uh, their day-to-day behaviour and how they go about their lives. And, and I kind of fell in love with the fact that the Ravens are very much like us. They have they have empathy and, and sorrow and pain and joy and anger and excitement, just like we do. And then I started to watch them going around uh, the tower and uh, just kind of read more and more about them. And then I started a social media site. Yeah, can we talk about that social media site? I mean, I started following you on Twitter when I first got your book, but it quickly became apparent to me that the real star of the show is Merlina the Raven. Yeah, she she has a tendency to. The the reason being, Merlina, she's actually quite friendly towards me. So she, she, she grew up with humans from an early age. So she's what I call humanized, imprinted is the technical term for it. And so she she's quite used to me and we have this lovely bond together. And uh, she does really well on social media. In fact, she gets postcards sent to her and letters and paintings and she's been tattooed on people. So I only wish I could actually teach her how to write and use the use my phone. <laughs> I feel like she might be able to pick it up too. She seems really smart. She is. She's really smart, actually. I, I've noticed over the years, although we know that ravens have a lot of intelligence, they're very, very smart birds, some ravens are smarter than others, like us. And uh, Melina is at the top of her game. She's very smart. So, I mean, what are the personality differences like between the different ravens? Because Merlina is one of several at the tower. Yeah. So, for instance, Melina's very close to me. She's a little bit like a puppy. When she gets told off, she'll come running to me or she steals something, she'll come running to me. She lets me stroke her and stuff like that. Whereas uh, the others, I, I keep them all quite wild at the tower for the simple fact. Uh, nowadays, I allow them to have much more freedom of movement around the tower than we have ever done before and so the rest of the the ravens are actually wild and uh, so they don't come to me as much as they can i could make them friendly but uh, then they'd go sitting on the visitors laps and stuff like that so it's it's better to keep them at a distance i like ravens to be with ravens rather than ravens be with humans Right. You're right. You say at one point that you might touch the other birds besides Merlina maybe like a dozen times a year to weigh them or trim their wings or give them medicine. And you don't train them to do things. You don't humanize them the way Merlina was. Why not train them to speak human? Well, you know, ravens have a, a wonderful vocalization between themselves. And, they, you know, they have 70 or 80 different calls. And uh, it's been shown, you know, some scientists believe that actually ravens have different dialects where they come from around the world. And I kind of think, you know, they, they don't need to speak human. We, we, can, we can speak human. Let the ravens speak raven, or as ravenish as I call it. And, I mean, you do speak some ravenish, right, with, uh, especially with <laughs> Marlena? <laughs> Yeah, so so we we have a call that we make to each other. So it's a knock knocking sound. I shall do it for you, just the once, mind you. It goes, and and she repeats that. It's a confidence call, really. So wherever she is around the tower, if she hears me knocking, uh, she will do it back to me, and I don't have to see her, or she doesn't have to see me, and we just know we're in the vicinity. It's like saying, "Hey, I'm here." 
I'm still here. And that's what it's like. And we do it until we get kind of bored of each other. And it's normally her getting bored of me doing it. And uh, so so I do I kind of interact with the Ravens like that. And I don't do lots and lots of calls with them. But uh, we've been hanging around together for about nine or ten years now. So it's quite a long time to have a, a relationship with Raven. I want to get into a little bit of the history of how Ravens got to the tower because there's this legend, right, that all the Yemen warders tell about the long tradition of the Ravens at the tower. And, you know, if the Ravens leave, then England shall crumble. But you did a lot of research and maybe that's more legend than truth. Yeah, so the you know, legend says that the Ravens leave the Tower of London will crumble into dust and a great harm will befall the kingdom. This came about uh, during the reign of King Charles II when he was restored to the throne of England. And he actually came to the Tower of London to see some works that were taking place. And at the time, the royal astronomer, a man by the name of John Flamsteed, uh, was doing his calculation of the planets and the stars on top of the White Tower. It was one of the tallest buildings in London, as you can imagine. And the ravens were flying around and interfering with his calculations. So he went down, according to legends, and says to the king, can I get rid of these confounded ravens and... King said, of course you can. And then someone turned around to him and said, Squire, if you get rid of the ravens, uh, the Tower of London will crumble into dust and a great harm will befall the kingdom. Of course, King Charles II was quite superstitious. His, his father had lost his head, King Charles I. There'd been a plague in London, 1665. 1666, there was a fire in London. So he decided to keep six ravens by royal decree. Do we have six ravens today? No, we actually have seven. However, the actual legend of the ravens isn't quite as old as, you know, it has been made out over the past. And uh, I, I, I done some digging and, and some searching around and stuff like that. And there, there was a wonderful guy uh, from New York, a guy called Boreas Sachs, who wrote a book called The City of the Ravens. And uh, a friend of mine. And he, he wrote that he didn't believe that the legend of the ravens went back any earlier than about 1880. So I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to try and prove this wrong. And could I? No. I spent nearly five years researching the ravens and uh, I never found any evidence that they, they dated or there was any connection to the ravens any earlier than about 1880. So how did they come there? Probably what happened, although we can't ever confirm this, sometime around that period of time the scaffold site was put in to the Tower of London to commemorate those who'd lost their lives, Queen Anne Boleyn, Queen Catherine Howard, Lady Jane Grey and some others as well. Of course, visitors were coming into the Tower of London in greater numbers, and the Yeoman Warders were bringing them in, and one of the Yeoman Warders' jobs at the time, as it still is now, is interpretation. And they was bringing in and telling the stories of the ravens, and telling the stories of the Tower and about the executions, torture. So what better way to, to enhance an execution site by getting some ravens, uh, kind of trimming them up a little bit, sitting them around the execution site and saying these ravens are the ones that uh, behold the execution of Queen Anne Boleyn. So it was really and truly a kind of a, a way of getting visitors into the Tower of London. And so the myths and the legends have kind of gone on since then. Right, another reality. And now you have to maintain them or else England will fall. So how do you get the ravens to stay there, stay at the tower. I mean, I love all the stories you tell about sort of using their own instincts or personalities or the way they just are to keep them enticed. Yeah, it's it's something that I, I've uh, I've learned over the years. I mean, previously to me, it's quite common knowledge that we'd trim up their flight feathers. And uh, the book mentions actually a couple of occasions where things went wrong for me. So we had a raven called Thor, 
and Thor, unfortunately, had managed to climb up to the top of the White Tower. And as a result of that, it, it was actually when I wasn't away from Master, I was actually an assistant at the time. And as a result of Thor climbing up to the top of the White Tower, he jumped off and unfortunately he died uh, because he'd been uh, trimmed up quite a lot. And he died in my arms. And that, that, that was, for me, that was devastating. It was really, really sad. And also, uh, over a period of a couple of years, we have lost ravens to predators. And we do have urban foxes that come into London and they come into the Tower of London as well. And so I kind of thought to myself, you know, maybe we should give the ravens a little bit more of a chance. So I changed how we'd done things. And it's taken me a long time to do it. And, and I'm not there yet, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting there. And so I, I want the ravens, obviously, to stay at the Tower of London. I don't want them to leave the Tower. So I still do what I call feather management. So, so it's, it's a way of looking after the birds, managing them to stay at the Tower, uh, but on their own free will, rather than being forced to stay there. So I, I trim up a little bit of the flight feather, either primary or secondary, depending on the bird. It depends on things like whether they're bonded to a male and female, uh, what weight they are, what size they are, what time of year it is. And, and so I, I take into consideration absolutely all the environment around me and, and work on each individual bird. And that allows them to have much more movement of, of freedom around the tower. So nowadays, if you come to the Tower of London, rather than just seeing them on the ground, sitting on perches, you need to look up because sometimes they're, they're on the towers themselves or in the trees or, or on the rooftops. And so it allows them to have much more freedom of movement. Now, ravens are really, really territorial. They love their territories. And so each raven has their own territory in the tower that they go to every day. And they're quite happy to, to go to them territories. We've also had a new enclosure built, and the enclosure uh, we, we had designed at the Tower of London about two, two and a half years ago now, that is, it's like their home, and I consider it their home. So like us, uh, when we've had a hard day's work, we want to go home, we want to put our feet up, we want to watch a bit of telly and, uh, and go to sleep. So their enclosure is exactly like that. Sometimes they do fly the coop, though, so to speak. Um, and I think one of the more tragicomic cases in your book is that of Moonin, a raven who has not only gotten her partners to aid and abet her escapes, but in the process has earned a rather dark nickname. Yeah, so so uh, after Thor had died, her partner, we, we put her in an enclosure because sometimes when a dominant pair of ravens lose one of their pairs, the others can, can fight for the dominancy and they can attack. And so we put her in an enclosure next to another raven called Gwillem. And they could talk to each other through the enclosure. So they started chatting to each other over a period of 24, 48 hours. And, and then I soon realised that they was actually kind of getting it on really together and, and, and getting quite cosy. So I put them together, so we left them, and they, they paired up really, really quickly. So she, within three months, she was with an older raven, actually. I think he was two years older than her. And she'd, she'd gone with him. So we thought we'll, we'll we'll let them back out again, and for a couple of days they was doing really well, you know, preening each other and and uh, doing things that ravens do around the tower. And lo and behold, one evening we couldn't find them. So we thought, where the heck are they? And then we looked on the roof of the White Tower, and she'd gone up there again, and she'd taken Gwillem with her this time. I was with one of my colleagues. He stayed down the bottom, and off I went back up to the White Tower 
to go and chew them off. But this time we'd realised that uh, trimming them up too much was bad, so we let them have more flight. And uh, so she jumped off, she landed on the south lawn, and Gwilym jumped off and disappeared over the wall, last seen heading towards the River Thames, and we never found him again, presumed dead. So within about three, three and a half months, she had actually taken two ravens inadvertently to their deaths. And so affectionately, myself and my colleagues named her the Black Widow. (laughs) Yeah, I care for her next partner. Yeah. So not to go on about death too much, because I know ravens symbolize a lot more than that. But there was one story of the death of a raven that really showed me how complex their emotional lives are. When Merlina, who's usually more of a people bird than a bird bird, found a friend in another raven named Hugin. Yeah. And how Merlina really seemed to mourn Hugin after her death. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a very sad occasion. Uh, Hugin uh, died in 2016. And ravens pair for life, male and female, but it's not always the case. Sometimes females pair together and males pair together. And you normally find it in younger female uh, females and males uh, for friendship purposes. And in the wild, I'm, I'm pretty certain they do it for protectionism. And uh, Melina and Hugin had kind of got together and they were happy in each other's company. Now, they didn't preen each other and go through the emotional uh, mating stuff like a male and female does, but it was like, hey, I know you're there, I'm okay with you being there, but don't get too close to me. So it was that type of relationship. And they, they would share food as well. And then one day, Hugen actually had passed away. I wasn't there at the time, I, I was away. Uh, and Hugen had passed away. She was in some bushes. And Melina was actually kind of walking around her and pecking her face and her eye, trying to wake her up, which was really, really sad. Really sad. And every time one of my colleagues went to, to lift her up to take her away, uh, Melina protected her, as if to say, no, 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 she, she's going to get up in a minute, she's going to get up in a minute. Anyway, eventually we managed to, to take her away. And then Melina went into what I can only describe as a sulk or a depression. And you could physically see her, uh, you know, she'd droop her head and her wings would go down. And she went off kilter, so she went out of her, her area that she normally hung around in. She went to a different area as well. And she stopped She stopped eating or she didn't eat as much. And you could physically see her going into, it was like so sad to, to see it. And she was suffering for the effects of, I can only describe as, as uh, Hugin's death. Are there any other strong emotions that you've seen from the ravens besides that kind of sadness? Yeah, I mean, it's been recorded as well that when a crow dies, uh, other crows go around and, and they have a crow funeral. So they're squawking and making their way around the crow and stuff like that. It has been seen. Uh, crows, I think, are quite more social than ravens. Ravens have a tendency to be much more private in, in their way of doing things. So they're really close to their partners. And when they're juveniles, they kind of hang around together and just cause trouble, really. Uh, but uh, they don't, they don't, they're not like crows. They don't come together in great big flocks and, and do stuff like that. So individually, I do see them having different emotions. I, I see them happy because they kind of jump up in the air and then jump back slightly and, and make a squawking noise and flap their wings and, 
uh, when they're loving, I can see them, you know, they go beak to beak. So they actually put their beaks together and it's like, like they're having a kiss. So they're showing emotions. What level of motion that they're actually showing up, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an ornithologist. I just observe them. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the most important thing that you've learned from all your time with the ravens? I'm still learning. The ravens are my teachers and I am their pupil. And I can come out and I see the ravens do something different every day. I think it's probably a psychologist that should study ravens rather than an ornithologist because they're interpreting everything around the whole surroundings and you know when you when you look at a dog or a cat or something like that it's looking at you and it, it wants affection and it wants food and stuff like that ravens want more they want something different they're studying you they're examining you they're they're working out what you're doing whether you're friendly or whether you're not and, and i had an example one of one of the old raven masters came to the tower of london he'd retired a couple of years ago and he came to the Tower of London, I think it was about five or six years later, and Melina saw him from a distance and came running right over to him, and she she recognised him instantly. And that is a massive amount of recognition. You know, they, they do know ravens can recognise faces for life, both for good and bad reasons and stuff like that, but to see that, to see that instant recognition with a raven interacting is, is incredible, absolutely incredible. Do you think that is perhaps why they're such a strong symbol for all of these different things, why they've been such ciphers throughout all of human history? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are so many cultures around the world that have used ravens and ravens have used them uh, throughout history. Yes, ravens have been associated with death and, and morbidity and the dying and stuff like that. You know, they're and most people see them as this big black bird that uh, hangs around scaffold sites and, and battlefields and, and looks for dead bodies and picks out eyes. And yes, they do that. But they do that for a reason. They're not doing it because that's their nature. They're doing it because they are survivalists. You can see ravens have been used by humans and humans used by ravens for thousands of years for navigation, for finding food. And they, they become part of a human society, really. For more wild stories of raven japes and escapes, you'll have to read Christopher Scaife's new book, The Raven Master. And if you want ever more, we've got links to history and bird books about ravens on the episode page, including some very flattering photographs of the show's real star, Merlina. We'll be back next week with more spooky tales. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.